Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. When a family member or close friend enters end-of-life health management, they move into a variety of treatment options. Hospice and palliative care, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening, and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, your Prairie Doc this evening. End-of-life care is varied and can make an important contribution to the quality of life. But first, a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. It is a yes or no question this week. If someone chooses hospice care, can that person later discontinue hospice care? Yes or no? We will announce the answer at the end of the show. Joining us tonight in the studio is Dr. Francine Franny Arneson, the Medical Director of Palliative Care for Avera McKinnon, and remotely via Zoom is Dr. Terry Peterson-Henry, the Medical Director of Palliative Medicine at the Sanford USD Medical Center. Thank you both so much for joining me tonight, both good friends and both happen to be Medical Directors for Palliative Medicine. So uh, Franny, if you would tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a neurologist by training, but found a lot of passion in palliative medicine during my intern year at Vanderbilt in Nashville, and pursued a fellowship and have spent my whole career on that so far. And where are you from originally? Uh, North Dakota, Great. so our northern neighbor. Good, and do you wanna do a shout out to the, your kids? Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> my husband's a radiation oncologist, and we have three awesome kids at home, nine-year-old and four-year-old twins that keep us busy. Good, good. And uh, Terry, would you tell us a little bit about yourself too, please? Sure. I started in family medicine, was in private practice for 15 years, saw some of the gaps in healthcare and the need, um, and went on to do additional training in hospice and palliative medicine. Um, and that's where I am now. I'm originally from Chicago area, but our family does have South Dakota roots. Great, great. And so to start out with, you know, I think one of the main goals of the show is to kind of show the difference between hospice medicine and palliative care. And of course, there's some overlap there. But uh, Franny, if you would introduce the subject, what is the difference there between hospice and palliative care? Sure, so when I think about palliative care, I think of it as an extra layer of support to any patient at any age or stage of a serious illness. The aim is to not only help physical symptoms and promote quality of life so people can live as well as they can as they're facing a serious illness, but then also focusing on all of the other human elements and the ways a disease can impact a life, whether it's spiritually, emotionally, or practical things like function. Great, great. And so um, where do you see your patients when you're seeing a patient doing palliative medicine? Sure. In our program, we have both inpatient and outpatient palliative care. So I personally work mostly on the outpatient clinic side, but also see consultations in the hospital for folks that are acutely ill 
either on the floor or in the ICU. And how about you, Terry? Where, where do you uh, practice at mostly? Um, I see patients both in our clinic, which was, is embedded in our oncology program, but we see all palliative care patients there. And then I also see patients in the hospital and we have an inpatient palliative care team as well. So Terry, if you would give us an example of, of a patient that you might see a scenario and, and how you can help. Well, we look at different scenarios. Um, in the clinic, it may be some anybody who has a, a serious medical illness and they may need some help with symptom management. They may need advanced directives or just support during the course of that illness, particularly with patients with cancer in which we, the outcome may not be what everyone wants, uh, but we are able to partner with them throughout their journey to help manage pain, shortness of breath, or whatever symptoms they're facing. Terry, do, do, would they need to be at the end of their life to be in palliative care? Absolutely not. I often look at if there's a likelihood of death in the next five years, and that may be appropriate patient for palliative care, particularly when they're struggling with, struggling with some of those symptoms that we can help with their management. And again, we really look at ourselves as a supportive care team. In the hospital, we may be involved in a variety of situations, anywhere from a new cancer diagnosis with some difficult symptoms to manage, to someone who's really facing some tough decisions about what they want to do because the benefits of the treatment options available may not be as high as some of the risks or the risks very high. And so it's really to facilitate discussion between that patient and family about what their wishes are, what's most important to them, and to help them get the information they need to make the best decision for them at that time. So Franny, you have this patient and, and they perhaps have cancer or some other chronic diagnosis. What are some of the symptoms that you're able to, that you ask about that, that you feel you can help, help them with? Sure. There's a whole host of them and every person's different, of course, but we definitely treat a lot of pain, whether it be pain related to cancer or sometimes pain related to cancer treatment, like a severe peripheral neuropathy. Um, we also treat a lot of shortness of breath, uh, nausea, constipation, fatigue, anxiety and depression are huge. Um, if it's bothering a patient, we try to address it. And the focus you know, there it sounds like is more on what can we do to help and as opposed to how are we going to cure this, right? Right. I think that in medicine a lot of times we think about curing. I think in palliative we think a lot more about healing, which is a more all-encompassing term where it might not leave in cure, lead to cure, but it leads to overall enhanced well-being. And so where do you see patients and where do you see doctors change as those goals are reconsidered and change when we're focusing more on the patient and caring, like you said, as opposed to curing? Well, I think that most patients really appreciate it when their doctor and medical teams see them not just as a patient, a hospital gown, a room number, but as a person 
that yeah. has priorities and values in their life. Yeah, that's great. So, so Terry, when you're starting those conversations, how do you arrive at those, those goals? How do, how do you introduce that topic? You know, first it's trying to get to know them. What's important to them? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? What is their bucket list? Also getting to understand what their understanding of the medical issues are and what, how much information they want to know right now. And then we can start to look at what are the options if that's the need at the moment. It might just be symptom management. And then it's looking at what can we do? Is there something that's reversible? We always look for that. Um, if it isn't, what else is causing it and what can we do or offer? And sometimes it's really a lot of creative thinking, especially thinking outside the box. We have a pain, how can we address it? What's causing it? If we can't fix it, I can't take it away. Um, what else can we do for it? And it might be medications, but it also might be, can we talk to our local anesthesiologist? Can we look at a pain block? What, what else can we do to help treat the pain depending on the circumstance? When someone's considering palliative care, now, do they have to stop any other treatment with palliative care, Terry? Absolutely not. So palliative care is really for someone who is undergoing treatment, um, if, they, if they want to continue with that. Um, and then it's really about living as best as we can and helping them to achieve that for as long as they can. Franny, you know, early on in your training, you picked palliative medicine. What was the draw for you? I started out my intern year with a few really challenging rotations, um, end-stage liver patients, oncology patients that were sick in the hospital. And the program that I was at had a really strong palliative care program, so I had a lot of interaction with them early on in my training, and it just clicked. It made so much sense the way that they approached the problem, not just from an organ system, but a whole person. And yeah. I feel like that is how I would want to be treated as yeah. a patient. Yeah. Terry, how about, how about you? How did you, you know, you mentioned how you saw this need. Um, how did you decide I'm the person to, to, to help fill this need? Well, I was asked to help with a hospice program initially, and then invited to get some additional training in palliative care, and then found that um, I, I really felt that the work we were doing was really important in trying to decrease suffering, getting to know the patient as a person, and helping them um, to live as best as they can for whatever, whatever time they can. Terry, what, what keeps you up at night? What, what frustrates you about palliative medicine? That's a tough question. Um, sometimes there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of, sometimes people think we are hospice when, when we're not. That we're all about making a decision now. Sometimes that is the case because it, it's just where we are in the ICU, in the hospital. But other times we're much more than that. We really are that extra layer of support. One to help with symptoms, one to help with their goals of care, to listen and be a support as well. So Franny, if someone wants 
palliative care help and they're somewhere in rural South Dakota, what, what can we do? So it's tougher um, to get what we would call specialty palliative care, which is what Dr. Peterson Henry and myself practice. Um, although there's a lot of virtual options these days um, with technology booming, but I would argue that many, many palliative care doctors um, aren't specifically trained in that. Primary care does a fantastic job. I've met many oncologists, many pulmonologists, lots of doctors and medical team members can actually do an excellent job having these conversations and helping patients define goals. How often do you find you've got a patient that you've been helping with palliative care and then you decide to discontinue treatment or move into hospice? I'd say in most of the patients we see, ultimately they transition to hospice care. I think that hospice at times can be very misunderstood and we do try to educate along the way and make sure that they understand what that benefit looks like so that they can make a, an informed and good decision for their own life and family. Um, you know, just a little nitty gritty question for hospice, who pays for this? Like, is it covered? It's covered and it's covered really well. Uh, most private insurance companies base the coverage um, similarly to Medicare, which covers the medical team, equipment that you need to maintain independence and function in the home as long as possible, as well as any medications that are needed to treat symptoms 100%. Great, great. You know, seeing a loved one in hospice care can be hard for family members. I know because I watched my grandfather as he went into hospice care. My grandma, Dr. Joyce Nelson, spoke with Prairie Doc reporter Tori Burnt about grandpa's experience in hospice. My husband and I had really a healthy life in many ways. But in the declining years, he did develop Parkinson's disease. And along with that came the sequelae or uh, the other things that tend to come along uh, with that. I think it was the realization that the wonderful life I felt we had uh, was uh, coming to an end. This was the 5th of April, and watching his decline, he had gone from about 170 pounds down to 140. So uh, he was tall. Well, I mean, not real tall, but 5'11", and his younger years, maybe six foot. And to see the hardest part was to see that life as we knew it wasn't going to return. We were also fortunate uh, that hospice then uh, continued their calls and increased both the uh, intensity and lessened up on the duration of the time. They provided us with a bath aid and a wheelchair. We did hire a young man to come from four to eight in the evening, three days or four days a week, I can't remember. 
but he would take him for a walk and Jim would help him to get ready for bed. Jim was a certified uh, nursing assistant. So we had marvelous resources. We truly did. And I can't say enough good about hospice. They were very good to visit and provide support to me and to him. Thank you, Grandma, and thank you so much, Terry, for all your help with that process as a, as a, a personal family friend. Uh, you know, when you're sitting down with uh, someone like my grandparents, um, what are the ways you start to talk about hospice with them as you're considering it? Well, you know, in this particular situation, and, and for many patients, it's when they just aren't happy with what's happening and what the options are presented to them. Sometimes patients are at a point um, where they're having to discuss feeding tubes and they're having issues with swallowing and difficulty with uh, high risk of aspiration or choking and developing a pneumonia. And so they're trying to make some choices about how do I want to live here out? Do I want to stop eating food and have a tube feeding and see if I can't live a little longer or, and, and knowing they can still choke on their saliva, or are we at a point that it's more important to be able to eat what I can and enjoy the time I have and if I'm not taking in enough or if I aspirate, that's part of the disease process and we accept that. So that's some of those discussions that we may enter into is how much technology, how much do we do? What, what is somebody willing to go through to get more time? And when is enough enough? Our role is never to push one way or another, but to help them understand the options that are before them and what's best for them giving their values and their goals at this time. Are there some resources you use uh, to introduce those topics or as people explore those questions? I know there was like a deck of cards one time. I don't know if you still use those, but. I do the go wish dot. Um, so go wish cards, kind of like go fish, only it's go wish. And you can actually go to the website, gowish.org. You can order your deck of cards or you can even play the game online. That's 37 value statements that have had a lot of data to show that those are really important to most of us when we think about life may be shorter. What's most important? And so you can go through and organize those cards as we call playing the game according to the top 10. What's most, what are the values that really speak to you the most? There'll be some that aren't so important and those will be important for your surrogate decision makers, for those you want to let know what's important to you because if they ever are in a position of making decisions for you because you can't, they're gonna to need to know what's most important. There'll be a bigger stack of those cards, it's in the middle. So we encourage people then to talk about it. Those value statements give language to difficult conversations. 
we know that most people would rather talk about sex and drugs with their children and talk about advanced care planning with their parents. So we know these conversations are hard. Franny, are there some tools or tricks or ways you recommend when people want to have these conversations, you know, with you, but also with other family members. Sure. We talk about advanced care planning with every patient we encounter. We bring up the topic. We try our hardest to normalize it. And it's not just because they're facing a serious illness and they're sitting in my office. Every adult, every responsible adult should have an advanced care plan. None of us know what tomorrow brings, car accident, serious um, injury or illness. And it really does put the burden on the shoulders of the ones we care about the most to try to discern what we would want done for our own health. So we bring it up, we normalize it, we have lots of different forms and booklets to help um, as resources and forms. Yeah, and when we're looking at hospice specifically, when when can someone qualify for hospice? Sure, when you look at the actual guideline, you have to have a physician that feels that if your disease ran its natural course, that prognosis would be six months or less. Um, anytime a physician feels that way, that benefit, it's the right of the patient, it's a benefit under their insurance plan. So I consider it our job to really introduce that and offer it and talk about it so that they know what their options are. And so if they enter a hospice program, what can they provide? Hospice? Yeah. So hospice does all sorts of things. It's a interdisciplinary medical team. So it's doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, aides, pharmacists, and others, volunteers that really bring the care to you, all-encompassing whole person care. And so they come to your home, wherever it is that you live, whether that's a tour bus, uh, an apartment under the bridge, they come and they care for you. Um, they also can provide equipment. So the first thing the hospice team does is develops a care plan that's very individualized based on your needs at the moment. And then that care plan evolves over time as your illness and your needs change. And so, and that could be, like you said, in a, in a tour bus uh, or in their home mm -hmm. uh, or in the nursing home. In the nursing home. Or even in the hospital. Do you see that sometimes? Sometimes, usually when hospice is provided in a hospital setting, it's a higher level of care. Hospice has different levels of care. So if somebody were to have a symptom that was really difficult to manage, that maybe they needed IV or intravenous medications for pain, oftentimes they might be admitted either to a high acuity hospice house or a hospital room where those sorts of more um, invasive interventions can be done to manage whatever symptom is going on. So that's another thing that hospice provides is those different tiers or levels of care. They also can provide respite care if family members or caregivers are exhausted and fatigued. And then they also provide bereavement to not just the spouse, but the care unit, the loved ones, for a stretch after the death of, of the person. Yeah, and so if someone outlives that six months, then what? So people do that all the time, actually. Um, 
to qualify, you have to have a doctor saying six months or less, right? Well, doctors are human. Doctors can be wrong. And Medicare and other insurance companies recognize that and they're okay with that. So if they outlive that six months, there's what we call recertification periods where they have to be reevaluated at certain intervals, three months, three months, and then every two months thereafter to make sure that they still qualify. And it's not within that initial six months, it's six months from the time that they're being reassessed. And if someone decides they don't want to do hospice anymore for whatever reason, can they go back into hospice later? Of course they can. It's always the patient's choice. Hospice, uh, you need the six months or less to qualify, but the other and probably more important thing is you actually have to want hospice. It's a benefit that you elect. It's not anything that would ever be forced on you. It's not mandatory. People can die all the time without hospice care. I would argue they probably don't have as good of an experience, but it's always um, a personal choice to sign off. And yes, if you sign off, you absolutely can sign back on if you change your mind. Terry, are there some services someone or treatment someone can't have if they go on hospice? They're not able to do the disease remitting you know, therapy for what they were signed onto hospice for. And so for example, if you have a cancer that's been progressing and a decision is made to stop treatment because the symptoms are too great from the treatment, um, you can't continue to have, have um, further chemotherapy or other treatment for the cancer if you are on hospice. Terry, you know, you, you've specialized in palliative medicine then. Was there a time you also worked in hospice and, and what made you decide to focus on more in palliative instead of hospice? I think just the needs of the team and um, just the, the growth in, in our palliative care program here at Sanford. Then so, there's others who are able to do the, the hospice services as well. Sure, and I'm sure that's similar for you. I mean, there's other doctors that are doing hospice. Yeah, yeah. I worked in hospice quite a bit early in my career, and I would say I, I really love both fields a lot. Uh, there's some days that I miss hospice a lot. Palliative care, ju I, I agree. I think that there's a higher need right now for specialists. Yeah. You miss hospice. I do. Explain that. Hospice is such a personal experience when you can journey along with a patient and their family through that intimate part of their life. I did a lot of home visits when I was a hospice medical director and I can't even describe how it feels to be invited into somebody's home and to hold somebody's hand yeah. as they're in the last weeks or, or days of life. Very, very special. It is. Um, you touched a little bit on advanced directives and we're gonna hear pretty soon about the, the most form and comfort one. Um, and then we, we'll get into those here pretty soon. But if you would kind of a little overview of what, what these are, what are advanced directives? Advanced directives are documents that should be based on a conversation with your family or loved ones about what's most important to you. If you were to get really sick and were unable to make your own decisions, how would you want your health care to look? 
And so it's a way to document it in a legal form so that your family has a guide. Sure. So while it may seem like a daunting task to prepare for the end of life, preparing the legal and necessary directives now is very important. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with Dan Rafferty with Avera Health to learn more about these options. The Comfort One form is a mechanism by which a patient along with their doctor can execute a do not resuscitate uh, order. And that is to be used when the paramedics show up at the patient's house. And one of the things that the Department of Health did is they also secured a specific type of bracelet that you want to wear at all times to indicate that you're a Comfort One patient and that uh, should the paramedics arrive on scene, whether at the patient's house or at the scene of an accident or something like that, uh, that they know not to administer. CPR at that time, and that's what Comfort One is meant for. Also, uh, if the patient is brought into the hospital, into the emergency room, and the providers see that bracelet, uh, then they will also honor that and not perform CPR. So a couple of important things with the Comfort One is uh, it has to be both by the patient or the patient's representative as well as signed by the physician because it acts as a physician order at that point in time. The other important thing is to make sure that you get the bracelet. It's one thing to execute the form, but out in the field when people are responding to emergencies or at the emergency department, they're not going to have time to find that piece of paper. That's why the bracelet is so important. So the MORPH form is relatively new in South Dakota, uh, and it is uh, gaining steam across the country in the various states. MOST stands for Medical Orders for Scope of Treatment. And again, this is something that's executed by the patient or the patient's representative as well as their physician, and it actually is an order set that the doctor has and the provider has issued to tell future providers what this patient wants in the event the patient is unable to speak for themselves. It is limited just for the end-of-life care issues, and so therefore it's limited in that respect in that it talks about end-of-life care treatment decisions, artificial nutrition, hydration, uh, the use of CPU the use of ventilators, uh, things like that, and other comfort measures that the patient does want. So you have the comfort one, the most, which is the medical orders for scope of treatment. Then you have the living will, and then you have the durable power of attorney for health care. Once these documents are executed, this is one of the legal documents that you want to share with people. This is not something you want to hide in the drawer uh, because obviously they need to be used in times when the patient can't make their own decisions. So things to do when you execute this document is to obviously share it with your primary care provider. Also share it with the hospital with which you're most likely to go to in case of an emergency. And they will actually store that as a medical record. Even if you've never been to the hospital before, had to be admitted, they'll start a medical record for you, if nothing else, than just to, just to have your advanced directive on file. So, And then finally, make sure you talk to your agent if you're appointing a durable power of attorney for healthcare agent. Uh, make sure they know, <laughs> they know this. Uh, and then give them a copy of it uh, as well. And then talk to your family about it as well. Thank you, Dan. And uh, so Terry, there's all these different advanced directives documents. Could you kind of walk us through those a little bit and what you recommend for who, what situation? 
Well, I do recommend, and just as Franny said, that everyone over the age of 18 or 21 have an advanced directive to designate who would make medical decisions for them if they couldn't, if something happened, either they were so sick, they were in the hospital, or they were on a ventilator, or they'd had an accident, and they couldn't make them either temporary or even permanently, who do they want to make medical decisions for them? So that's the first part of an advanced directive. And that's the durable power of attorney for healthcare. Yes. I think that's even better. A living will is a chance to write down what your wishes are if something were to happen, but that's not as effective as having a durable power of attorney, someone that your healthcare team can go to if something were to happen and say, this is a situation, what do you think they would want now? Because that piece of paper isn't able to interact with us and you can't predict what situations we could possibly be in. Now, South Dakota does have the South Dakota Medical Care Consent Act. And so if we don't write it down, then we utilize that that states, you know, your first decision maker, unless you tell us otherwise, would be your spouse. And if it's if you don't have a spouse or they're no longer living, then it would go to your adult children. And if that you don't have adult children or they're not able to participate or we can't reach them, then we're gonna to go to your parents if they're still living, and then it goes down to siblings. So I think it's it's important to know we do have have a law or in South Dakota to help us, but it's better that you choose who you know will honor your wishes and, and help us best to make that decision. For example, I do have a team member who said they didn't want their spouse because their spouse has been clear that they're not comfortable with that. And mm -hmm. so in that case, they've discussed it with their children and they've chosen their power of attorney that way. And so we also wanna make sure we choose a power of attorney for our healthcare is someone who knows us, knows our wishes, we've talked to them about it and they're willing to act in that capacity. That's the first part. The second is then to talk about what things we would or wouldn't do. What are our values? And to know that these directives should be updated every decade of life, anytime there's a big change in our circumstances, such as a diagnosis, or if there's even been a death or illness in the person we chose as our power of attorney. And you're able to put in who you would want as primary, who do you want as your alternates as well. So that's, that's part of it. Knowing you have to update them, this isn't a one and done. This is an ongoing dialogue with your power of attorney over your wishes as they change and our values change as we live our life. So that's part of it. The second is discussing, uh, again, those values can lead in discussions as medical issues change over what we call our, our code status or what we're willing to go through if something serious happened, whether we would wanna be on a ventilator or, or life support, or whether we would want resuscitation attempts if our heart were to stop. And that's gonna change as time, as we age, and as medical issues develop, because the success of those procedures goes down as life continues to happen and as medical problems increase. Thanks for mentioning that. So, you know, it, for many people, I, I think we might think, well, gee whiz, why wouldn't I, if my heart were to stop, why wouldn't I want 
CPR, the chest compressions, to restart it and bring me back to life. I mean, worth a try, right? What, what are some of the reasons why you, you might not recommend that for a patient or for yourself or a family member? Now, we look at that as an attempt. It's not a guarantee we're going to bring a heart rate back. And we have to look at, you know, our bodies are pretty complicated and there's usually a reason why a heart stops or we get into such respiratory difficulty that there's an underlying medical condition. And so we have to look at where are we in the trajectory of that illness and how much life we can anticipate. And also, if we attempt those measures, what's the success rate? We know that as we get, especially into our 80s and into our 90s, the success rate is very low. And there's a, there's a significant risk that even if we were to get a heart beat back, we may have some impairment in our ability to know who we are and where we are, that we may not know that. And so I think it really is talking about what's most important to us and looking at that prognosis. What is the chance of that being successful and what are the risks? And so we look at why would we put somebody through something if we know it's not gonna be successful, it's a procedure. It's the only medical procedure in which we don't have informed consent. You really have to have an informed consent not to have it attempted. And that's really where we get into those code status discussions and the development of something like portable orders, which is that Pulsed or South Dakota most document and the Comfort One. Terry, I don't know if you could see that on the screen. Um, when we have CPR in the hospital, adults with serious illness who get CPR and live, looks like this study found that at most 15 out of 100 leave the hospital, and even then they may live an average of four months. Um, and then meanwhile, CPR out of the hospital, adults living in the community who get CPR and live, maybe five out of 100 leave the hospital, um, and in a residential setting like a nursing home, get CPR and live, maybe two out of 100 leave the hospital, and they even then may not live you know, up to a year. Um, Franny, how do you have these discussions about CPR and the limits of it, and why, why someone might not want CPR? Sure, that's a good question. I usually approach it as soon as I'm worried that CPR wouldn't be helpful, or that I'm worried that if this patient ended up on a ventilator, it wouldn't end well, and it would end up being the family member making a decision to take them off of a ventilator uh, for the end of life. And so usually the way I approach the conversation is I ask the patient how they feel about, in their present state, if they were so sick that they couldn't breathe on their own, with something we thought might be reversible, like a pneumonia or an infection, how would they feel about being on life support? My next question is always, so now we're on life support, we're treating the pneumonia, but it's not working. Now our kidneys are failing, we're running into some heart issues. Would you wanna be maintained longer term if this attempt wasn't successful? And then my third question is always, now we're looking at something different. This isn't something that's reversible. This is either an advanced cancer, advanced heart disease, something that we can't fix the underlying reason why we need to be on life support or have CPR attempted. 
in that situation, how would you feel about it? And really the trade-off that we're making when we know it's not gonna be successful is it ends up being an end-of-life experience with machines, doctors, nurses, medical staff, strangers, as opposed to being a loving, home-like environment with the ones closest to us holding our hands and kissing our cheek. And it's just two very different circumstances. I always also tell people there's really no right or wrong answers to these things, but it's not fair if you don't understand what choice you're making before you make it. Yeah, you know, I think I, when I'm talking with patients and for my own family, I, I think, you know, no one wants to picture themselves in the hospital for a week or two or a month or months on a ventilator, on, uh, you know, life support for an even extended amount of time, even a little amount of time. And so, you know, that's where these advanced directives and these conversations with our loved ones can help ensure that that hopefully doesn't happen that way. Right. Now, if you think about artificial nutrition, IV fluid, Terry, how, how do you talk to patients about whether that might be a good idea or not? And for that matter, a feeding tube as well. Right. And so again, it comes down to what is the specific illness that's happening? Is this going to be a temporary? Sometimes they're willing to do a temporary um, tube feeding or a time-limited trial to see if this is going to get us through. Or sometimes willing to get go through a lot of medical issues as long as we know we're gonna get better and there's gonna be a better day. But sometimes when things are just escalating or things are not going well and they're not improving and we start to feel like the more we're doing, it's only increasing suffering and we're not getting what we want. And so it's a good time to talk about how much are you willing to go through? I mean, with a feeding tube, some people are willing to do it temporarily, see if it'll get me a little better. But if it isn't and things are starting to, other medical problems are starting to happen. And just as Franny said, you may you might have start with not able to eat much, but maybe it's due to heart disease or it's due to a cancer or it's due to end stage lung disease where you're just not able to, um, sorry. Say Franny. So let's say a patient has um, this decision about a feeding tube or artificial nutrition or something. And a lot of times a family member might feel, well, I wouldn't want my loved one to starve to death or to dehydrate out. I mean, is that something, how do you approach that or what do you? Well, I think I agree with Terry that one, it's, it's disease specific. There's diseases that feeding tubes actually make really good sense. Um, ALS would be an example. Uh, certain stroke syndromes would be an example. And then there's other disease states where we know it doesn't improve the outcome and it doesn't improve survival. And so though like end stage dementias, things like that. So Or a big stroke too. I mean Yes, or a yeah. great big stroke. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So those would be times that 
I actually would recommend against it because most often in those types of states, we can actually cause more harm. When the body isn't up and moving and able to function normally, a lot of times that extra fluid that's in tube feeding or IV fluids can end up collecting in the tissues and cause swelling. It can collect in the lungs and make breathing more labored. The patient might experience shortness of breath. So I really approach it from a medical standpoint when I'm thinking about it in my head, but I also have to recognize there's a huge emotional component. As people in our country, we associate food with caring for one another, right? Somebody's sick, your neighbor brings you a, a casserole, right? We, we consider it family, community, and so talking about the illness being what's driving end of life, and it's not starvation, it's the body's way of protecting itself, it's needing less, and that's why we're unable to consume food. I know Dr. Holm, uh, bless his soul, was uh, passionate about this, and, uh, and uh, explained to me how it, you know, the body's natural drying out process and how they're not hungry and how natural endorphins kick in and, 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 and we don't need to be shoving food down anywhere or fluids for that matter and, and just letting their natural. And I second that. What I want to clarify is that in no way would ever mean that we would withhold sure. nutrition Correct. that a patient would want. So yeah. even at even when patients are nearing the end of life, I always tell family members, you can offer bites and sips. You can offer, if they say no, respect it though, because it's their yeah. way of letting you know what their body needs and doesn't need at that time. Sure. Terry, with just a couple minutes left here at the end, any uh, final, final thoughts, final recommendations from you? I think we need to look at talking about our wishes is normalizing that because it is important to talk about some of those what ifs we always hope for the best um, but at some point we're all all going to die and so it's always important to think about when serious medical issues start to happen to talk about our wishes and to know that our wishes are going to change over time very good and franny any other any thoughts you have? Yeah, I guess I would encourage folks that if you have any serious medical illnesses and you haven't talked to your doctor or medical provider about these sorts of things, I encourage you to schedule an appointment to address it. Most doctors want to talk to their patients about this and they're awesome at it and they care deeply about you as, as a patient but there's not always time in a busy clinic day or it just doesn't come up or they're not quite sure how you're gonna take it. So I would encourage you, please speak to your doctor about these, these items. Yeah, and you could even make a visit just for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been so wonderful having you both on here, a very special show and both uh, uh, special people. So it, it just, uh, thank you so much for being on here with me. Pleasure. And now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Doc quiz question. Yes or no? If someone chooses hospice care, can that person later discontinue hospice care? Yes or no? The answer is yes. Patient is free to leave a hospice program at any time for any reason 
without penalty. The patient may re-enroll in a hospice program anytime later if they meet the medical eligibility criteria. We'll be right back after this. Have you heard? The Prairie Doc has a podcast. Listen to Prairie Doc Radio and On Call with the Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcasts. These programs feature physicians and other health professionals discussing various medical topics important to you and your family. Look for Prairie Doc on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. The Prairie Doc Podcast. My last conversation with Grandpa was over the phone. He was sick and dying. I was 1,200 miles away in residency, learning how to be a family physician. I was not going to make it home in time to see him one last time. We did not know exactly what was wrong. Sure, he could have had more tests and been admitted into the hospital, but that was not what he wanted. Thankfully, a family friend and physician had talked to my grandparents about their end-of-life goals. This discussion helped Grandpa realize what was important to him, like his faith and being with Grandma, and what was not, like spending time in doctor's offices and hospitals. Even though I was a physician in training, I supported his choice. He was in a peaceful place, listening to music, talking with Grandma, and other friends and family. Most people want to die at home, however, only 20% do. When it comes to dying, some advanced planning may make a world of difference. It does not require an official document or appointment with a lawyer to make plans for how you would like to spend your final days. It does not even necessitate a visit with your doctor, although all the above may help. The most important thing is talking to your loved ones about your wishes and goals of care. How do you know when to have this talk, how to bring up the topic, and what to say during the conversation? How and when do you say enough is enough when it comes to searching for a cure, a surgery, a treatment, or spending a few more nights in the hospital? Discussing these questions may not be easy but it is more productive and less stressful to have the conversation now rather than during a crisis. Start with scheduling an appointment with your doctor for the sole purpose of talking about your end-of-life goals, expectations, and values. Then, together, adjust your care plan accordingly. Revisit these discussions periodically with your family and your health care providers. It was tough not being there with Grandpa, but he was at peace, so I was at peace. This past year, many others have had to say goodbye remotely or did not even have the chance. This is a reminder for us all to have meaningful conversations, to tell our loved ones how much they mean to us, and to cherish the time we do have together. Once again, a big thank you to our guests, Dr. Terry Peterson-Henry and Dr. Franny Arneson for volunteering their time to help us learn more about hospice and palliative care. If you would like more information about this program 
or to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. So, Mom, it's 20 years ago now that you and Dad uh, started this idea of uh, evidence-based medical shows for free for everyone. Does that sound right? That's right. And it was really great that you and, and your dad were able to create that theme music for us. Yeah, that was really cool. Making music with Dad, one of the best things. You know, I, as long as I can remember, you and Dad were pouring your energy and your heart and your soul into, into the Prairie Dock and into the Healing Words Foundation. And I'm just really proud of you. It's great to have people of your generation, like our new Prairie Docs, to uh, give us your ideas and to help continue Dad's legacy. It's our turn to uh, turn to the people out there and say, we need your help. <laughs> you can support us too. Uh, we do this without advertisements and we need independent support. So go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. And uh, if you don't have money for that, keep coming to see our show. We need your support in other ways. Thanks. Thanks. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Dock has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, Fishback Financial Corporation, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.